Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. I'm getting goosebumps sitting here right now thinking about how quickly we were able to create a safe and effective vaccine. It just goes to show that when you throw enough money at a problem and you collect the best scientific minds and put it all together, this can happen really quickly. Even now, they are not sharing information and trying to dissociate themselves. It's like, hey, we got it under control. It's It started somewhere else. And that is a huge problem. And because uh, China has several global hotspots where these diseases begin fairly frequently, we're going to have to find a way to work together. Well, Happy New Year to all our listeners, and let's hope it is a much brighter and more COVID-19 free world. We have a leading infectious disease epidemiologist, Dr. Maureen Miller of Columbia University, who's joining us to talk about some very timely insights on our road to recovery from Operation Warp Speed to China's role in COVID-19. Dr. Miller is with Workplace 2030, a not-for-profit initiative which reimagines the Office of the Future as we come to terms with the world of pandemics. Dr. Maureen Miller works closely with Brandon Cook, who is the founder and executive director of Workplace 2030, which has set up the world's first epidemiologically guided office of the future prototype in San Francisco. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. Well, I'm delighted you could join us for the first episode of the new year. I hope it's going to be a good one. I'm feeling quite optimistic. Uh, We had a great Christmas holiday season with family and friends, even if there was a lot of social distancing. It's always a special time of the year. Now, my guest is Dr. Maureen Miller, a leading infectious disease epidemiologist with Workplace 2030. We started our interview on the China connection with the COVID-19 pandemic. And let me tell you, it's worth a close listen. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Thank you, John. I'm delighted to be here on behalf of Workplace 2030 and also to uh, tell your listeners a little bit about what's going on with COVID-19 right now. I actually have uh, pretty extensive experience in emerging infectious diseases 
And I worked directly with uh, Professor Shengli Shi of the Wuhan Institute of Virology on coronaviruses. <laughs> she is wonderful. Um, I'm hoping that the latest World Health Organization investigation helps uh, clarify really how this epidemic did begin. Okay, so maybe we'll just pick up on that real quickly and then get into the substance of 2030. Wuhan, so a lot of people claim, state, and are adamant it came out of China and a laboratory in Wuhan. What, what do you make of that? First, yes, absolutely, it came out of China. Um, I think there is uh, genetic proof of that, um, but there's also the experience, the initial experience of the virus within China, about which I say, I hope we learn a lot more. But even from what we do know, it started there. Uh, the first cases were reported there, and they weren't identified anyplace else in the world. In terms of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, it is a level four biosecurity lab. That means there are all kinds of checks to ensure the safety of the operation of this laboratory. It is, uh, in, they are international standards and they're monitored by international teams. So the idea that uh, it, it was accidentally spilled from the lab, I don't believe it at all. Not at all. Not from knowing Shengli Shi and her staff who are rigorous in their implementation of the guidelines and who also do not want to get sick. Um, they are really in the, in the sphere of prevention. So one of the reasons that, uh, that Wuhan is the center of the epidemic, the purported center, is because the, it is the scientific center of China. So it is not at all surprising that a disease this wily in which, I don't know, 40% of the people who get infected never, ever show symptoms. Um, this disease was probably around for quite a long time before it was identified by knowledgeable scientists in Wuhan. It's absolutely not a surprise that that's where it was first identified. There was controversy over how slow the World Health Organization was in getting the information out about the virus and that claims that China tried to clamp down on the release of the information. China's tough. <laughs> I mean, working with Shen Li, it, I, I never spoke with her on the phone. I never received an email from her ever. The only time that we discussed science was in China, often at restaurants. So she is a very uh, discreet scientist, but also somewhat frustrated. Um, she has uh, expressed an interest in this new uh, crew of World Health Organization experts who are going to try to figure out how the whole thing started. She wants them to visit her lab. The Chinese government does not. So working in China is very, very challenging. And I think the World Health Organization bumped up against that from the beginning. Uh, China did, does not want to be associated with this deadly pandemic. And I think they are trying to rewrite history in a certain sense. Um, I, they managed to control uh, their own uh, epidemic. Uh, I knew it was bad. You know, I, I monitor these things. So New Year's Eve, it came on the on the news. It was like, okay, something bad is happening. But when they shut down the entire country for their 
lunar festival that is the biggest holiday of the year and no one was allowed to travel, that was that was a big uh, red flag in my mind. You suggesting that the World Health Organization acted honorably, but the information was delayed in getting to their offices. I would like to say that I don't know of any government or uh, governmental agency that has not made mistakes, big ones. But I also think that the World Health Organization tried to interact with the Chinese government in a way to help share, help the Chinese government want to share information. And I'm not sure that that was the best tactic, but I don't know what would have been the best tactic. I'm sure there are going to be a lot of forensic analyses about what went wrong and what we could have done better. So you've been to China. Have you been to the laboratory? Have you been to the Wuhan Clinic Laboratory? It's Yeah, it's a laboratory and scientific center. Absolutely, I have. That's where, um, that's where we did our work together. Because I, she's Shengli is about prevention. So, and I am too. Uh, I try to prevent infectious diseases from spreading. Well, you'd say not successfully in this case, but um, I wanted to know if um, it would be possible to see if something like a SARS-like coronavirus had already spilled over into a population, a human population, so that we could monitor to see what's going on. Because these zoonotic spillovers happen a lot, but most of the time nothing happens. Most of the time the person will get sick and survive or they'll die. Think about rabies, for example. That's That's a zoonotic disease spillover from an infected animal to a human. Or um, and or they'll be asymptomatic and won't even know that they've been infected. So I wanted her to take uh, one of the bat viruses she has in her catalog. So she's got the genetic sequences written down, and I wanted her to to develop a, an antibody test for humans to see if that SARS-like coronavirus from the bats had already spilled over into human populations nearby the cave where the bat had been found. I know that sounds really complicated. One of the challenges that we have now in identifying when a pan- when a pandemic threat occurs is that somebody sick has to go to a hospital, one of the network of global hospitals that is able to identify that this is something new and bad and then have the authority to tell the government, "Hey, we've got a problem here." So in this case, it was probably tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people had already been infected by the time they discovered it in Wuhan. So I wanted to see if we could discover it much closer to the source. And in fact, um, we did. The ASARS like coronavirus, not COVID-19 and not even um, a, a close relative to the SARS, the original SARS virus that also um, hap- uh, found began in um, China. Um, so it was a SARS-like coronavirus that could maybe possibly make people sick. So we actually found it in 3% of the population who lived nearby. So it's possible to identify these kinds of pandemic threats 
much earlier in the process. And I think that's a direction we're going to have to head in future. Yeah, well, one of the takeaways is that the free flow of information ethically done speedily is good. Scientists share information worldwide seems to make sense. But there have been all kinds of wild uh, theories and conspiracy theories that have emanated out of that. We don't want to spend the entire show on that, but China spread it to destabilize the global economies and even worse. And I agree with you with your wording. I think they are conspiracy theories. And one of the appeal, one of the appeals is that it's so easily understood. Rather than the complex, it went from a bat to another animal to a human, and then it went from human to human. That that sounds like science fiction. Spilling from a lab does not. What we do have to acknowledge, China is a totalitarian state. You could take that for what it is, but it's not a democracy. And things are done differently in China, and some not done so very well. Oh, absolutely. And the sharing of information, even now, Even now, they are not sharing information and trying to dissociate themselves. It's like, hey, we got it under control. It's It started somewhere else. And that is a huge problem. And because uh, China has several global hotspots where these diseases begin fairly frequently, um, we're going to have to find a way to work together. This is fascinating. So where are we at today? with the pandemic we have the vaccines have been released and uh, they're working their way through the u.s population and across the globe what kind of progress have we made that is the light at the end of the tunnel i am i'm getting goosebumps sitting here right now thinking about how quickly we were able to uh create a safe an effective vaccine. It just goes to show that when you throw enough money at a problem and you collect the best scientific minds and put it all together, this can happen really quickly. I also, sometimes people are hesitant to take a vaccine and this one seems like it, it happened in record time, but you know, so, you know, four years is the average for a new vaccine. Well, so much of that time is spent looking for money to do the research and convince people that, yes, we need a vaccine for this. Um, The other problem is that if there's not enough disease around, you can't test it that easily. You have to go out and hunt for the people who might be exposed and then try to vaccinate them and do the clinical trial that way. Sadly, as we know with COVID-19, it is everywhere. So it's the fact that so many people are exposed and becoming infected um, or not infected thanks to the vaccine, that made it so that it could happen in this record time. I just want people to be comfortable with the idea of getting vaccinated. And I love that there are uh, the former presidents, the the president-elect, the vice president, um, I want to see some. I want to see some music stars. I want to see some movie stars. I want to see everybody get vaccinated on TV to prove that it's safe. Because we're going to need seventy to eighty percent of people around the world vaccinated against this disease. How far away are we from that goal? We are far. We are very far. Um, so. Uh, until we can get everyone around the world vaccinated, we have 
the usual. I mean, you get tired of hearing it, but I don't think it's said enough. Mask wearing, social distancing, avoiding crowds. These are the, the mechanisms to prevent the spread of infectious disease that have been around since the Middle Ages. And that's what we've got right now. And people, even more people need to be doing it. I know you mentioned the the horrifying news coming out of the UK that we have a much more transmissible variant of the virus. That is not good news. However, it's also not the first time it's happened. It's happened two times before over the course of this pandemic. And the fact that so many people get infected allows these uh, mutations that are uh, transcription errors. It allows these mutations to occur more frequently because it's zooming through various bodies. Um, This one is particularly scary because preliminary lab results suggest that it's twice as transmissible as, um, as previous strains, which were really pretty darn transmissible. So we have to do a lot more than we've been doing because even before this highly transmissible strain, we were seeing increases everywhere uh, of coronavirus. So it's had some kind of impact. You know, the IHMA, which is cited widely by the CDC, um, in terms of projections where this virus is going to go, it has gone haywire because, yes, we have a new vaccine that has, uh, has the potential to have a huge impact fairly quickly. However, um, until the estimates are until the end of March, mask wearing, universal mask wearing, that means 95% of people are wearing masks every single time they step out the door. Um, outside, inside. And if someone is sick in at the home or has been exposed to someone who tested positive for COVID, that means you should be wearing your masks at home, which sucks. It, the mutation out of the UK, will these vaccines work uh, with this new strain of COVID? Yes, yes. Um, and I think we can, uh, because the vaccines work on different, levels on different parts of the virus. Their main target is the spike, which is what is now making things more transmissible. There's been a mutation on the spike, so it's more transmissible. But these are multi-action vaccines. Over time, perhaps we will need to update these vaccines. And in fact, we probably will. If you think about the flu vaccine, every year we create a brand new flu vaccine because the flu mutates and it mutates really, really rapidly. This coronavirus is not mutate is not mutating nearly as rapidly as the flu vaccine. So we may have to update in in who knows what time frame. I would I would you know say a year we would we would probably need to update, but that might be part of the process that's going on right now. Um, that people were aware that these vaccines might have to be updated. So it's still ongoing, all of this research and development. So we still need to keep funding it. There was some concern and alarm when that news came out of London about the mutation that uh, perhaps the new vaccines wouldn't work, but you've allayed that fear. So the UK 
government and regulators take the right action, closing their borders. France and Europe uh, and and surrounding island nations would not let uh, any ferries go through their ports. Uh, That is a really excellent question, Um, because as we've seen, this virus does not respect uh, geographic boundaries at all. However, the idea that it is much, much more transmissible requires some serious action. So one of the actions that can be taken is um, testing before people cross a border or as they immediately arrive at the border, perhaps better before they cross it. Um, Because if they're positive, they just won't go. It's quite amazing how quickly they got the vaccines out, Operation Warp Speed. What's your thoughts about that? Again, I think it was because there was so much interest, so much funding, and so many cases that made it possible to create this the, these multiple vaccines because there are several more promising candidates that are in the works. Um, so we won't just have two. We'll have five or six viable vaccines. Um, and then we can, you know, if there are greater mutations, um, then we can advance the technology and create even better vaccines. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Dr. Maureen Miller of Columbia University and a leading infectious disease epidemiologist with Workplace 2030. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Now, I want to talk about Workplace 2030. It launched the world's first post-COVID guided office of the future prototype. So it looks like we're going to have new office environments going forward. And this has sort of given us an insight. Tell us about that. I love Workplace 2030. When Brandon Cook, the founding executive director, called me, I fell in love with the idea that he didn't call it Workplace 2020. He called it Workplace 2030 because, sadly, this is not the the last infectious disease epidemic or pandemic that we may see in our lifetimes. We need to be prepared for that. And his thinking, he was very future forward in trying to design uh, an inviting, safe, and uh, comfortable space for people to want to come back to work. Because before people are going to work productively in the office setting again, they're going to have to feel really safe there. And that is huge. I, I, I don't think we should underestimate it. The other thing is that people want to go back to the office. They miss their work colleagues and friends. I do. Uh, so you need to create an environment that will prevent the spread of infectious disease and make people feel comfortable being together once again. What does this workplace look like physically, the structure of it, the design? Um, So the structure, a lot of these are going to be retrofitting existing spaces. We have a lot of office space in this country, in the world that uh, needs to be upgraded 
to be able to prevent disease because everything we're doing now to prevent COVID also prevents flu, also prevents cold, all these other airborne infectious diseases that knock people out um, for weeks at a time over the winter um, will also be prevented in this new healthy environment. So he came to me around issues of design and um, environmental factors, such as air quality and the need to have filters to filter out um, not only this virus, but also harmful bacteria. And because people will, are they, you know, I mean, there are definitely some perks about working from home. Um, so in a recent study, um, one in five people never wanted to go back to the office again, but three in four wanted to have some sort of hybrid uh, situation where they worked at home some of the time and in the office other times. And often what was underlying that was the desire for the serendipitous conversations you have near the touchless water cooler or um, meetings to brainstorm because it just doesn't work on Zoom. So the idea was to create an inviting space that can be modular, that when it is safe to have, you know, 10 people in a conference room again, uh, you can do that. But until that time comes, uh, mark uh, six feet social distance, have technology that says you have uh, reached capacity in this community space, uh, have ventilation, uh, have plants, which also act as a filter, but also are calming and comfortable and make the space inviting. I think one of the uh, one of the things I like the most, um, and there is so much to like, but the mudroom. There is when you enter your your building space, you know, you have to go through all of that check-in, touchless, of course. But then they have this thing called a mudroom where it is both a physical and a psychological transition from the outside world to your safe inside workspace. Um, and that's where... Um, you know, the beginning of the, uh, the health check-ins occur. Um, so I love that idea, but it's just a, a physical and a psychological transition into a safe space. Do not underestimate the, the importance of the idea of safety when workers do start returning to the office. So Workplace 2030 is a nonprofit organization and headed up by Brandon Cook. I imagine a lot of social distancing, more social distancing in the workplace of the future. Workers spread out in cubicles, constant cleaning around offices, the air filters, as you pointed out, almost a hyper attention on cleanliness. Absolutely. And I think um, I think that has been a feature. I mean, we sold out of toilet paper and Lysol at the beginning of the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at the be- uh, I, I, we might see that again. Um, but uh, yeah, no, certainly attention to those kinds of details and, you know, directions in walking. Um, so, you know, getting rid of tight access spaces um, through uh, unidirectional uh, movement. So, but making it subtle and attractive and almost 
the the way the space is configured, it kind of forces you to go in that way without really having to think, oh, I have to go right now. Um, so I mean, the space is beautiful. It's really nice. And th- th- we're going to have to work hard to attract people to come back in the office, particularly before the um, the vaccination rates are as high as they're going to need to be. Will mask wearing be a permanent feature, do you think, in some organizations? Uh, well, at hospitals, it is. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, so uh, mask wearing, I think we're going to be wearing masks for a while, and I think we should be wearing masks for a while um, till we, uh, again, till we have this high, high rate of vaccination, which is going to take some time. I mean, because of the availability of the vaccine and, but new ones are coming online. So it's not totally clear when this will happen, but we're going to have to wear masks because the research has not yet fully concluded that you can't transmit the virus Uh even if you don't get infected yourself or you get a less severe infection yourself. So even when you're vaccinated. So that science is going on right now, and we should have the answer to that. I mean, logically, you shouldn't be able to transmit it if you are, if it's under control in your own body, should you get exposed. But we don't know that for a fact right now. So I for one, I'm going to continue to wear my mask. A lot of responsibility on companies, human resource departments to get this right, because they're on the front lines. Will they have to employ more medical experts, especially the largest companies are having nurses on standby? Obviously, temperature checks will be a standard procedure. Absolutely. And they they are already in most places to do that temperature check because that is a huge sign that you are um, uh, that you are ill and ill with other things too. So I mean sick leave is going to have to be something that is discussed. But I think the idea back to your question of establishing medical relationships, I don't think companies will need to have a nurse on staff but to have um, relationships with different kinds of medical providers, uh, people who uh, specialize in giving tests, um, those that are medical in, um, in specialization. So those kinds of relationships will more than just right now, what we have in the United States is with our insurance companies. So so or businesses have a relationship with insurance companies, but it should go broader and consider health more broadly. Um, and mental health is certainly going to be something that um, specialized referrals that HR can give to people. Right now we have it in the form of um, like substance abuse assistance, but that doesn't cover the spectrum of mental health needs that are going to happen after um, once we start, once we come out the other side. Of course, the majority of workplaces are moving permanently to a hybrid of remote and in-office work. We saw that obviously during the worst of the pandemic, and I don't know what the numbers are, but I assume most workers work from home 
a good proportion of the week. And that's going to continue well into the future. Well, certainly the technology companies, um, even as early as last summer, they were saying, you do not have to come back into the office until July 2021. And I think that was fairly prescient. And uh, But again, I think people are longing for that company to work together to make their work more interesting uh, just by virtue of discussion. So I think that hybrid is real. And as people are retrofitting their workspaces to make them safer, healthier, um, and inviting, that is going to be taken into consideration. So let's look to the next summer beyond the spring. Will New York City return to a more new normal? Uh, I think it's going to be, uh, well, first Broadway has already shuttered doors until September 2021. That is the estimate when they feel that they'll be able to get shows back up and running. Um, uh, the the safety issue for the general population to want to go to restaurants, to want to go to the theater, to want to go to live sports events, that's going to take a while to come back. Um, I, you know, in New York City, as I, I'm based in New York, and there are so many empty storefronts now. So it's going to, we're going to shake off to a new a new world. And I'm not certain what that normal is going to look like. Yeah, it brings us back to the idea that the cure has been worse than the cause. And we could have a very long debate about that. The toll on mental health, social isolation, businesses that have been lost. But then on the other side, we have to get to the bottom of COVID-19 and get rid of it. Without addressing COVID-19 completely and eliminating it as, as a big risk factor from our lives, people will never be comfortable returning to a way of life the before times. Uh, so that that is the economy. Controlling the pandemic will allow the economy to reopen. I just want to quickly go back to China. Do you think when all of this is behind us, uh, China will be called to account to be more transparent? I don't know how you could possibly do that under the current regime, but will there be more pressure exerted on China? Look, guys, you have to be, for the sake of humanity, share all this information. We cannot have another pandemic like we've just had. I, there, there already is pressure and China, I'm sure they have done a lot of research and they have answers to some of the questions um, that we want to know. But the fact that they are allowing 10 uh, international experts into the country sponsored by the World Health Organization is they had to give a little. And I think that pressure is just going to increase and increase and increase uh, I, how to actually do it diplomatically, politically. I'm not sure what that looks like, but the pressure is certainly going to be there to not, not only to China, but to other hotspot countries around the world to share their information and to build up the capacity because a lot of the places where these viruses that are uh, potential pandemic threats a lot of these places are um, are poor and don't have the infrastructure to even identify when something has happened. 
And now we know the worst case scenario, it can be an airborne virus that is asymptomatic. That's the worst possible combination. Well, Dr. Morin, you're at Columbia University and you're also associated with Workplace 2030. So I'm sure you'll be doing a lot of travels in the coming years related to what we have been going through, including stops off at China. Yes. And I do want to bring this back to Workplace 2030 because uh, I worked very closely with Brandon to get him up to speed on how to use the many tools that are available to the public to be able to uh, do a cost-benefit analysis, particularly around travel. So all of those resources are on the website, workplace2030.org. And we also um, worked to create the means to interpret these because you look at a map and it's, you know, red squares, orange squares, green squares, what is going on here? The, uh, to an epidemiologist, it's, it's a dream. It's like, oh my goodness, what is going on here? Um, but when, you know, somebody who doesn't have the expertise I have clicks it open, it's like, okay, what does this mean? Well, what it means is that you can find out down to the county level what the infection rate is. It level is, what the hospital utilization is. Are people wearing masks in this county? Uh, so we have lots of tools to be able to say, oh, I'm my, where I live is on fire right now. I really should not travel at all to any place. Or I there's a very low level of infection. I'm thinking of visiting my sister in California. What's it doing there? oh, it's not good. So I'm not going to visit her. So I think uh, we also have a document on travel, how to utilize these tools and be safe in travel, particularly business travel. Uh, you know, there are tools that we can use to gauge our level of safety and to put us more in control. And I think that is one of the ideas uh, behind Workplace 2030 is how to give not only employers control over the knowledge about how things uh, can be safe, but also to give that direct access to employees so that they feel like they have control and can monitor their own safety. That's called Workplace 2030, and there's a prototype in San Francisco and New York and Chicago uh, locales are also planned for those who want to take a peek. The San Francisco site, it's gorgeous. It is beautiful and functional. It's, you want to go in there and hang out and work and be with your colleagues. And over 50 of the Bay Area's largest employers have toured the prototype workplace in the last two months. Brandon has done a really excellent job in pulling together experts in the areas of design, technology, services, and it's all quite seamless. The other aspect about Workplace 2030 is that it's interactive and that it provides resources and tools for people who are, you know, you don't have to do the full rebuild, um, but for people who have questions, very specific questions or very general questions about what do we need to consider as we're um, revitalizing our workplace? So they're a resource, they're an example, they're a learning center. And yeah, Chicago and New York are slated to um, have uh, prototypes built in the very near future. Well, I can't wait to see it come to reality in New York. Dr. Maureen Miller, it has been a pleasure. Thank you and keep up the great work. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure as well. 
You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.